Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. As we transition now, we're going to transition to a time of uh, listening to the teaching of the Word. And so I want to invite you to posture your hearts and to prepare yourself to hear from God uh, through His Word, through the teaching of Pastor Andrew. Let me pray for us. Yeah. Jesus. Thank you so much for our church. Thank you so much for that. You, um, you join us in this space. You meet us in this space. You speak to us in this space. And we invite you even now. Uh, would you speak to us through Pastor Andrew? Uh, would you challenge our hearts? Would you convict us in areas where we need to be convicted? Encourage us in areas where we need to be encouraged? And would we walk away from this room this morning differently than when we came here? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry, I didn't mean to leave you hanging there. <laughs> um, we are in a series uh, that is meant to help us just take a fresh look at the teachings of Jesus. And it's one of my just favorite things to do in the fall. The last couple of years, we've gotten into this. And this idea of the Jesus that I thought I knew. Like recognizing that there is uh, so often when we come to the Gospels, we come with our own uh, baked-in presuppositions. We come with our own baked-in sense of what we remember him saying or thought he said. Or, and then when we're actually confronted with some of his words, the words of his followers who are fleshing out the way of Jesus, we realize actually we, we need to be confronted all over again with what he really says versus what we thought he said. So if you turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians 8. 2 Corinthians 8, 1. A lot of these passages are not going to be on the screen on purpose. Um, one of the things that we want to start encouraging our team to do is to come with an with a analog Bible <laughs> um, and to come with a journal. Not because they're any holier, but I think sometimes for a lot of us, we take notes on our phone, and then when we take notes on our phone, that notification pops up and then begins to drag us off into the abyss. Also, um, when new folks are coming in um, and they look around and see a lot of people on their phone, they don't know if you're taking notes or actually engaged. I think there's a way we can kind of like lift each other up in the scriptures. Guys, there's no football on until one o'clock, right? That's the only thing we'd be looking at anyway, right? No. (laughs) I sometimes like to just pretend we're like a really football heavy church and we're just not at all. So I just just do it for me and Kevin or something. (laughs) Anyway, a lot of these passages uh, are going to be uh, in that Bible in front of you. 2 Corinthians 8, 1. That was a joke. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord 
and then by the will of God also to us. Paul is writing about their generosity, and he is writing generously about them. Right? This is some, you're doing all right. I'm guilty of the endless troll of New England culture because I was born here and I can do that. I was exposed recently to Noah Kahn. Does anyone know Noah Kahn? Singer, songwriter, solid. He's from New England, from upstate Vermont, I believe. And the way he sings about New England as somebody who is a fairly delusionally optimistic person like myself, like everything is up and to the right even when it's not, can guess my Enneagram number if that's your thing. That whatever that guess is, it's right. I just, I have a hard time with anything or anybody who just sort of like blanket puts something down. And yet I was raised in an environment by, I've mentioned before, like a hot-blooded, like critical, justice-minded Irish woman. And so I have a bit of an edge, but the edge is always like, like just softened so deeply by this internal, but it's going to be all right, optimism. I start listening to Noah Kahn, and he is just railing in to New England culture. And by that, I mean the rugged independence that happens here. That, that sort of like keep to yourselfness that happens here. That if you grew up um, anywhere in this area, just the north and the, just the weather starts to get to you, right? We're still riding high in fall because this is like the sweetest time. And most all of us can get to Christmas, right? And then it's like even a little bit of winter is nice, a little bit of gray. Oh, and then Christmas is over. And anybody who's lived here for a bit knows what's, what's about to come. You know what's about to come, right? Nothing. <laughs> Just kidding. We're going to make this winter the best winter ever. Best is yet to come, 2024 sanctuary. Uh, <laughs> But it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. And what it does is it seems, tends to produce a workaholism, tends to produce a sort of just odd kind of critical curmudgeon spirit. And there's something that by no means permeates every inch of this region, but this just, just sort of keep to yourself. Don't get too big for your britches. It's what the Australians call a tall poppy syndrome. You ever heard this idea? It's like if any of the, the poppies get a little higher than the rest of the field, what do you do? Celebrate it? Way to go, bud? No. Chop it down. Right? Level the field. I know I've shared this so many times, but there's this singer that some of you have heard of. leads a small band that I really love in Ireland called U2. Anyway, and he, uh, <laughs> haven't done a U2 reference in a long time. Bono talks about how, you know, he's this multi-bajillionaire who's known throughout the world, except unless you're Gen Z and you've already forgotten about him. And, uh, and he says, part of the joy of living in Ireland is because I go anywhere else in the world and I walk into a pub, you know what everybody wants to do? Buy me a drink. I'm, I'm Bono, right, whatever. He's like, I walk into a pub in Ireland, you know what the expectation immediately is? He will buy everybody in the pub a drink. They look at him like, come on, we know. We know who you really are. I hope you're picking up the tab. 
There is a hard thing, I think, for many of us in our culture at large, not just to pick on New England, to celebrate. To not immediately go to the negative. To not immediately go to the problem. To not immediately go to, to the edge. And what I, I love just out of the gate here, where Paul's talking about the unbelievable generosity of the Macedonian church, but is speaking so generously about them. And he uses this phrase to describe them. He calls them the Lord's people. The Lord's people. The word here that we're going to explore for a minute and do a little Bible survey on is the word hagioi. Can you say hagioi? You got to hit it, the H kind of hagioi. Yeah, pure and holy is what the word means, set apart. It's translated the Lord's people. It's translated holy ones. Many translations use the word saints. As he is speaking both generously of what they've done, he then calls them the holy ones, the Lord's people. He calls them the set apart ones. Why does he call those Christian saints set apart? Let's do a little overview here. Acts 9.32. As Peter traveled around the country, he went to visit the Hagioi who lived in Lydda. He went to visit those people who he calls the holy ones and the saints. 2 Corinthians 13. Greet one another with a holy kiss, a practice I would love to bring back. Any of the, like, the, you know, like people have the love language, or like physical touch. Like you're like, that would be a sweet one. No? Just me? Okay, alone. All God's people here send their blessings. God's people is Hagioi. The God's people, the saints, the set-apart ones, send their greetings. Apparently, the people here in Lydda and the people in Macedonia are the Hagioi. Ephesians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To God's Hagioi in Ephesus. To the saints in Ephesus. Philippians, to all God's Hagioi, holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For Paul, the writer, if you're new to the Bible, the guy writing these letters, Paul in the scriptures, he, he, he looks at these people and apparently all these folks, all of these followers of Jesus are, are Hagioi. For Paul, there's a, a, a new reality that opens up for you. Something happens when you open yourself up to trust Jesus. This acceptance of who God says that you are, what it is to be with him, produces something. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Anybody pregnant? Sosthenes, that's the word, guys. That's your child's name. To, to the church of God in Corinth. It's such a bad pastor joke every time I tell it, though. It's never going to change. To the church of God in Corinth. To those sanctified. Will you say sanctified? Sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his hagioi. Sanctified. The idea of sanctified is literally the idea of being cleaned out. To those that have just been refreshed and reset and cleaned out, they've been sanctified. Something has happened to them. Just the last verse in this same letter, we read that we as the church have the, quote, mind of Christ. 
It carries with it this idea of us seeing things in a new way, sanctified, cleaned out, set apart, given a new mind. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. He speaks again of this... um, in Christ reality. Therefore, if anyone has sort of committed themselves to this union with God and are now living under his reign, it's when member, like membership and baptism in the early church, the language was often around citizenship. It was like, I pledge now allegiance to a whole new way, not just new leadership, but a whole new way of being. My allegiance is now here to the Lord. And he says, when you do that, when you begin to step into that world, it's like something in the future comes rushing back into the present in some way. The old is gone and the new is here. Sanctified, set apart, given a new mind, part of a new creation. Let's keep going. Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you were once far away and have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Again, the phrase in Christ. This comes up again and again and again. Any of you who love to study the Bible, I want to encourage you, take a deep dive into that phrase in Christ. It is quite literally everywhere in the New Testament. This idea of union with God is like the chief end of our walk with him. And this phrase comes up again. This is who you are in Christ. You were separated You were cut off. The love of God was distant, but you have been brought near. This Christ, this new reality you're welcomed into, you're brought into it, given a new mind and a new reality. According to Paul, being in Christ, we experience, hear this, a fundamental transformation of our identity. We're no longer who we were. We're no longer who we were. This then underguards everything he wants to tell them. He fundamentally sees them different. And this is why he uses the word again and again and again, this word. Say it with me. Hagioi. So while we still sin and we still fall short, He does not fundamentally say to the sinners in Macedonia, to the sinners in Jerusalem, to the sinners in Lydda. What does he say? To the saints, the saints, the saints, the saints. To the saints. Mind you, these are the same letters that, again, when we read these things, sort of pull them out of context and people try to weaponize them, are the same letters where it's like, please don't do that, please don't do that. Do you know how hard and strong and like wild and and like for real your sexual drive is? Yeah, we're going to talk a bit about your sexual drive and sexual ethics. Do you know how like that drive to like steal and to take and to lie? You know the drive it is to gossip? You know how hard that is? You know how hard it is sometimes on this side of eternity to really trust God and like what it is and how we can so easily fall off the map? The same letters that have these lists, these places where Paul goes there with these people begin with Haggioi to the saints, to the set-apart ones, to the ones who are marked by Christ. You've heard the phrase, rather popular, I'm just a sinner. 
just a sinner. I, I, it's, a, it's a great phrase, yes. But a sinner, capital S, is no longer, if we're to trust the Bible, our fundamental identity. In some traditions, that might be the moment where you go, Amen. Ready? Let's try it. Amen. All right, sweet. <laughs> I just think it's our tradition in some. Our fundamental identity is no longer this, but that. These have a few implications. We live into and according to our perceptions of ourselves. We each have those voices in our heads that tell us who we are. I don't know what those voices are for you. Trauma in your life. Things that were done to you. Ways maybe that you just royally screwed stuff up. These things kicking around in our hearts. These voices. These voices that tell us, like these messages and tapes that play in the back of our mind, these things guide us. They guide how we live. They shape how we live. And if you believe that you are worthless, if you believe you have very little to contribute, this will fundamentally inform and dictate how you engage with the world around you. Some of you know this acutely. Some of us like to pretend that's not the case. And it frankly is, turn to your friendly neighborhood therapist and say, you're right. <laughs> Are you sitting next to one? We know this. We know this, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. We know this. We are just pushed and pushed by these things and these tapes that play over and over and over again. If you believe that you have nothing to contribute, this will inform how you behave. If you believe that you're poor and you measure that poverty only by money and resources, that will deeply affect you, right? Just as an example, if you understand poverty based on issues though of the heart and the spirit, and if you understand that you may have very little in your bank account, but you have a big wide heart, that will affect how you interact with the world. You've heard of like poverty mindsets. Right? We could use a number of examples. We have all these messages and voices that we live into and we live according to. And depending on how we understand them, they shape who we're becoming. And the way of Jesus, all of its contours and beauty, one of the things about the way of Jesus is it's about changing those messages. Changing those messages. The gospel the good news that Jesus is king, that we are adopted into his family, that we are saved by grace through faith. Paul says, you have new messages now that tell you who you are. Who are you? You're a child of the king. Who are you now? You're saved and rescued by him. Who are you now? Love that the depth of your being, you have come into a knowledge of who Christ is and what he has done for you. Paul says, you have new messages that tell you who you are, a new mind. You were far, but you've been brought near. You may feel far today, but how you stand before God ultimately, no, you have been brought near. You may feel dirty, but in Christ you have been sanctified, made clean. You may have a past that follows you everywhere, but you have what? A new future.
throughout church history, when this idea was announced, people would call it good news. And there would be much rejoicing. We live into and according to the perceptions that we have of ourselves. And Jesus comes along and he shifts our perceptions in Christ, in this new reality. You could say it like this. We are pulled, drawn, led, brought, guided, and compelled into our truest selves. Now, here's why this is important. If you haven't already picked up on this, we're no longer who we were. For many of us, there is a past. There are mistakes and wounds and secrets and shame and guilt. And so what happens is we have all of our personal histories that often push us from the past forward. And they push us into the present. We enter into something, a new relationship. Is that you? Have you entered into a new relationship, a new situation, a new season in your life? And you've got those scripts that are low grade, like I'm probably going to screw this up. Or because you were hurt in a relationship, you're like, that person will probably do the same thing to me again. Actually, I'll probably be betrayed again. You may not say it so explicitly, but you realize how these things temper how you act and how you move forward. And Paul is saying, you don't have to be pushed by your circumstances. You don't have to be pushed by all of those scripts of things that are real, that have happened to you. This isn't about denying them. But those things don't have to be the things that push you into the present. There's something God says about you that actually will pull you into your future. You don't have to be pushed into your present. You can be pulled into your future by who God says that you are. It's good news. So when he says, says things like this in Galatians 2, he says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Like, what a weird thing to say. Because he also goes on to like continue to wax poetic about just how jacked up he is. Paul's like not like, the, the, the progression of Paul and how he talks about his own sin actually gets worse. He's like, wow, I am more aware and more aware and more aware of my sin. Mark Twain said, the older I get, the less I know. I don't know, starting to feel that. It's like the older I get, the longer I do this thing, the more I realize I actually don't know much. Technically, I know more than I've ever known, but you, I'm exposed to just how little you actually know. It was the same with his sin. He's like, I, I continue to grow in a revelation of just how jacked, I up, uh, jacked up I am because I'm getting a deeper revelation of how good and beautiful God is and realizing it is in that journey that leads me back to Christ. So he's on this road of recognizing his own sin, but says at the outset, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's like all of that stuff has been somehow put to death, even though I'm coming to a deeper revelation that it's all still very much there and in me. How can I allow God to pull me into a better future? How can I allow God to pull me into the person that he created me to be? It is a recognition of what fundamentally defines you. This is the key. What fundamentally defines me is not that I ignore the sin and brokenness and ache and pain in my life. No, it's that I recognize what fundamentally defines me is I am loved by the God of the universe. And the more and more we get to press into that, the more and more it shapes us. I had a friend years ago who started coming to this Sunday evening worship service that was called Sanctuary. 
that we did before we launched the church. That was like the beginning of our church journey. I don't know why I'm sitting down right now. It just felt right. And <laughs> the camera crew can't see this now. <laughs> he would um, come to me and go, Andrew, I love coming, be in this dark room, light a bunch of candles and sing like 12 songs till our voices were hoarse and then go out for a beer after. We'd do this every Sunday night. Such a gift. Season in life where I encountered God in a fresh way. And he would, his only critique was like, I feel like the themes of these songs are getting horribly repetitive. <laughs> like, yeah, you're probably right. Didn't notice it. There's a lot more going on in his life as he was trying to sort some of this out. But he came to me about a year and a half later after he had become a follower of Jesus, or really, like he would say, I really like understood what God was doing. And he realized what in so many ways those songs were doing, those verses were doing, these similar refrains, the coming to the communion table again and again and again. They were just pounding into him. This is who you are now. This is who you are now. Everything in your body and your bones is going to be tempted to not trust that this is who you are now because of the things that have been done to you and what you have in your own heart. Because of the, old, your, the, the, the scripts and the narratives that preoccupy so much of that ticker tape that's rolling in the back of your mind. And he's like, Andrew, it's like, it's like God's just like pounding this into me. You can trust me. You are loved. You are saved. You are free. You don't have to fear death. And the more and more he began to understand it, not in his mind, he understood all of this like as a factual things that Christians taught right out of the gate. It was when it began to get into your heart. Friends, I've been following Jesus for a long time now, and I find myself on the regular in seasons, God giving me fresh revelation of who I am in him. And it has been those moments that have produced the most change in my life, the most transformation. The good news is not fundamentally a reminder of all the ways that you've screwed it up. It is the promise and possibility of your true identity in Christ. According to Paul in the scriptures, the truest thing about you is that you are in Christ, which changes everything. So this is implications about how we talk about sin again. All the sin people are like, finally. I'm getting a little nervous here. If your identity isn't secure in Christ, that you are loved, adopted, known, and seen, that you're here on purpose, then the last thing you're gonna wanna do is be honest about what's going on in your own heart. This is the inward journey that we talk about in our church, becoming like him, allowing God to turn the bright lights on, allowing the spirit to search us and pull the things up that we're trying to keep down. If my fundamental identity if my fundamental identity is in question, then dragging all that stuff up is gonna be terrifying, right? If my fundamental identity, that I'm loved and I'm okay, that I'm covered in the blood of the lamb, whatever like really Christian language you wanna use or just basic language, you are loved, adopted as a son of a child of God. When that takes, if that's not taking hold in you and you start looking at the lists, you start examining just how jacked up you are, and you are jacked up, lest you think you're not. It will be so hard. It will be terrifying. But if I trust this new reality in Christ that I am part of the Hagioi, 
I have a new mind that I'm being sanctified. This frees a person to be ruthlessly honest about the deepest, darkest, hardest stuff in your life because my identity is no longer in question. When you're freed, when you're freed in your identity, you can just own up to things. You can dive into the heart of things that have impacted you. So important, which leads me to one last thought today. I'm going to invite the band up. Jesus invites us. Jesus invites us to trust that a new word has been spoken about us. Philippians, read in chapter 3. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. He's like, you're on a journey. We're all on a journey. God will begin to reveal things more and more and more to you. And he says, look, live up to what you have already attained. Live up to what you have already attained. He says elsewhere, flesh out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling, which sounds like, ooh, no, like, like, like with awe and wonder and a recognition, like, like flesh out the fact that God's healed you and this is what he said about you, that should produce a bit of woe in your life. Everyone say woe. If we're to trust this, it produces in people a bit of woe. To, to live out and flesh out your salvation, to live up to what you've already attained, is to begin to work out what God has done for you and who he says that you are. This act of trust is done with great confidence in who Jesus is and what he has done. The invitation to trust this new word, that there's a new creation, that we don't have to be pushed by our stuff into the present, but we can be pulled by God into our future is good news. That is not who I am anymore. Though I stumble and fall and all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no reason to believe, none at all, that if Paul were to write us a letter, somebody would stand up and read that it wouldn't begin to the Haggai in Providence, to the saints in Providence. Grace and peace be with you. God is pulling us, pulling us forward into who he created us to be. A new word has been spoken, friends, into your marriage. A new word has been spoken into your ache and your pain. A new word can be spoken into this season of uncertainty. A new word can be spoken into the battle you're having with anxiety and depression. A new word can be spoken into the ashes of a divorce. A new word, a new word can be spoken into that cycle of sin that you're in, that thing you're sitting with. A new word, a new word has been spoken. Jesus, we trust that you, Lord, want to bring new life. This is what you do time and time and time and time again.
And we just acknowledge, Lord, that the Jesus we thought we knew sometimes. (laughs) Some, I don't know, Santa Claus making a list and checking it twice. It's some condemnatory figure. It's some just angry coach pushing us harder. And Lord, today we just sit here hopefully reminded of who you say that we are. Last week, there was that moment when David looked out at the room and poignantly said to to all of us, die. (laughs) There's a bit of context to that if you weren't here last week. Die. You speak with that simple boldness of this is the invitation to continue to die to yourself when your identity is secured. And so we just continue as we as a church pray with great vision in this season, believing God is gonna do a fresh work in our city, that God is gonna bring some acceleration of the normal things of the spirit, that God is gonna bring renewal, maybe even revival to our city and to our churches. As we're seeing more and more people come alive to the spirit of God, as we see more and more tears on the altar, we're just going to keep inviting ourselves to say, no, I need to die to the places where I'm not trusting what God said about who I am. Or I need to die to these things that continue to push my identity forward into a, like a, a myopic presence, into a, a, a flatlined presence, instead of being pulled into a glorious future, to keep coming to the altar to die. Because as we follow Christ to the cross, we find ourselves, as Paul says, raised to new life. The same stuff, the same spirit, the same thing, whatever it is in that mystery that rose Christ from the dead, he says is alive in you. The Haggai, the saints, the ones who are loved and adopted and free in ways that you don't even realize yet. So come and die to all the nonsense and keep coming to die out of a desire to pray, God, we want you here. More in my heart and more in my home and more in this region, God, more. We want to walk in greater freedom and love and grace. So would you stand with me? I want to start from a place of standing as we close as we linger in these last few minutes together. We want to open the altar again. This front, all that means is like this, the front of this building, this thin space up here. If there is something that God is doing in your heart, we just want to encourage you to move. This isn't for us or for anyone else. It's actually for you. Maybe from this place of standing, you want to begin to move to your knees. Maybe you'll just sit right back down and begin to gaze up. But the invitation, well, first off, whatever, Lord, you want to do in this room, come, Holy Spirit. But where, are the, where is the fresh invitation to trust again the new word that has been spoken? To trust again. To allow the smile to creep across your face and break off. Break off the ways that you are just cynical towards your own heart 
cynical towards our God, cynical towards hope and new life. Holy Spirit, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you come? Holy Spirit, would you come? As we begin to sing, let us draw near to the Lord in whatever way he's inviting you. Amen. Amen. Amen.